Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello everyone, I'm Sam Morse. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with me today I have Sandy Copeman. Hello. Hi there, Sam. <laughs> Welcome. Nice to be here. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? So I was one of the founder members of a model making company called Amalgam in 1985. And there's a story to be told there about how we eventually ended up making big scale model cars for Formula One teams and then ultimately for Ferrari and their ilk. Um, and I'm now the brand marketing and business development director yeah. with the Malcolm Collection. So, okay. Did it start, it didn't start off with cars, did it? No, started off with architecture and product prototypes. Um, and we had the four partners who founded Amalgam mm. in the, the Amalgam model makers we were back then in 1985. We'd all been working with somebody else um, with a small Bristol-based model making, general model making company. And we had some connections with um, Norman Foster and partners because we'd worked on some projects with this other company mm. where we decided to go it alone and create Amalgam. And um, so we started straight into making models for Foster and Partners, and which kind of set the tone, really, for the way that we were going to go right the way through, continuing into the era of model cars, in that we, were, we always wanted to work with inspirational designers and, you know, the very best mm. um, designers, companies, brands. Yeah. Um, and we did a bit of work with uh, the other early days – with Amalgam making product prototypes, we did a bit of work with James Dyson as well. Oh, really? And I remember nice. having a horrendous session trying to cast one of the original, um, the, the, the clear plastic um, 
container, the bucket, yeah. as it were. I've forgotten what the rather fancy name that uh, James Dyson had for that. But um, it was a, a nightmare job. We got there in the end. <laughs> so we started off, you know, as a small Bristol-based company, we started off pretty well with some pretty high, yet to be, you know, high-profile customers in case, in case of Dyson. But with um, Foster's, that was a really fantastic start. And before that point, so you all, all previously working for a separate company, had you been like, how, I mean, how did you even get into that? Were you making models at home and then was like, I want to do this as a job or end up yeah, falling into that? Yeah, that was a kind of a, a, a happy accident. But then, you know, happy accidents happen for a reason usually, don't they? We're not being mystical about it or anything, but they happen <laughs> because yeah. they, the opportunity is attractive in some way, you know, for yeah. both parties or, or whatever. Um, yeah, and I did. I had made models uh, as a kid, um, you know, built kits like everybody. So there was nothing yeah. unusual about that, you know. Models of the Shan Horst, I remember, um, Airfix kit of the Shan yeah. Horst or Spitfire and so forth. Um, which actually, in truth, I mangled terribly. So they weren't fine <laughs> examples of the model makers' art. And then, the, well, I did something that probably was significant is I got into. Um, slot car racing when I was okay. about 15 hmm. and I joined the local Lewisham because I was born and brought up in southeast London and I got, joined the Lewisham slot car racing club which had a, a big events room that was laid out with a handmade circuit above a pub yeah. which is typical of those kind of things so I really got into building my own slot cars um, and that was following a passion for formula one i was a massive you know even younger i was a massive fan of jim clark mm. and you know because he was a sort of the ideal boys hero jim clark modest and you know just a yeah. genuine nice guy but with fantastic ability and courage and so forth um yeah so that's sort of you know i had a foundation there in making models and i used to be on my on my knees uh, in a corner of my parents' living room with a soldering iron and kind of a pair of pliers bending brass wire up into chassis and soldering them together. Um, yes, that's probably... And then the other thing is I did have a, a history in making stuff. I, I built a, a reflecting telescope when I was okay. around 14 years old and, and cut and polished the mirror, the... Um, uh, yeah, just built the whole thing, which was quite an achievement. And I had been making some musical instruments as well. So I had a passion for making stuff. Oh, wow. And yeah. always, always overreaching and doing <laughs> yeah. stuff that was way outside my skill set or, you know, ability. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that that's that's something that comes invaluable later on, doesn't it? Yeah, and presumably learning. Like, you try and build something, you haven't got a clue. You learn a lot in the process. Yes, yeah, yeah. You also learn a lot about ambition and disappointment and kind of all <laughs> yeah. those, you know, life's general lessons are learned as well. Um, and I, later on then, having sort of dropped, you know, that sort of all dropped away, mm. I got on with my young hippie life and kind of ended up living in the country near to my sister in West Somerset. And uh, looking for a, a job, I found my way to another model-making, sorry, the first model-making company. Mm. Um, and the guy that I was working for was building a model village called Tuptonia that was going to be, eventually we ended up working on site 
near um, on the south coast. Yeah. And the Tactonia was, uh, we, we built, it, it was the best of British, British architecture. That was the billing. Right. We built a bunch of notable London buildings, the Treasury, Horse Guards Parade, Big Ben, the Houses of Parliament, all at, um, say, just for an idea of scale, Big Ben was probably about three metres high, something like that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so yeah. Pretty big buildings. Anyway, that was a kind of, you know, fun uh, reintroduction to <laughs> making models. Yeah. In this sort of process of building the, these buildings and stuff and at the time, how do you go? How do, how do you even like start to build a re- a replica? And I presume they are are they they are they like exact scale replicas, or are they just kind of like smaller? You're talking about Tactonia and those buildings. Yeah, yeah, the, the that, buildings. That an, you know, things have evolved a bit since then. <laughs> <laughs> we would say so. We had drawings that were in the public domain of these buildings. Mm. Um, you know, in terms of plans elevations but mostly it was photographs we were working for yeah. photographs and we used all kinds of crazy techniques i remember doing we we built um the old london bridge with houses on it you know the medieval yeah. london bridge and um i remember visiting the i don't know why this sticks in the mind actually visiting the post office which uh, this was in a little tiny village called stogumba in west somerset so um we were working in a sort of loft, garagey type of space. And there it is, the London Bridge. And I remember popping down to the um, the post office, which was a tiny little, tiny, tiny little store and yeah. post office. Um, you know, the counter was about two metres long. The whole room actually was probably only about four metres square post office. And buying boiled sweets. I bought okay. boiled sweets, layers cobbles. Oh, okay. A variety of different shapes. Um, but what we were doing, the technique was building um, master components. That's remained, that is a thread that's run right the way through, actually, to what we're currently doing, is that we're making master components, say, boiled sweets, spaghetti, yeah. <laughs> or in the current situation, beautifully CNC machined from CAD. Yeah. Patterns is what, you know, that's the traditional sort of term, but we call them master components as well. Um, and then we're putting those into rubber models. So that's what we were doing with Tuctonia as well. We'd make a, a pattern for each component, put it into a rubber mold, and then cast resin into it. Okay. Just you know, as we do now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I didn't, I didn't know how, how they were made at all. Like I, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think just... you know, it's interesting that the, the evolution of amalgam model making and then into mm. amalgam collection, making cars, making Formula One cars, and so on. There is a there's a thread that runs right the way through there in that we as I say, we use that resin casting technique, and it became so it was pretty rough and ready with something like Titania. But later on, when we started Amalgam, um, working for people like Dyson and Fosters and so on, uh, if you wanted to just to repeat an object or a, you know a feature in an architectural model, or yeah. in the case of a, a product for Dyson, we did lots of other product work as well. Um, what you were trying to do with the, those product models is make a, a visually identical as much as possible replica of yeah. the product that will eventually be coming out. And in, in the sort of mid to late eighties, there was a company in Japan, probably actually probably from the early eighties actually, um, called MCP that they, they recognized that there was a need for 
um, replicas, you know, marketing and testing and just product, you know, design development. Yeah. There was a need for making full-size models of a, a product design uh, in a way that actually replicated the, the kinds of plastics, the injection mold plastics were used for the final production uh, okay. using a, a system that you could use, you know, create very small numbers so you can make mm. one or three or five Dyson vacuum cleaners yeah. and, you know, put them in front of people and, you know, start to test them and use them as well. Um, so they developed these resins and a machine for vacuum casting and a whole kind of ecology around this ability to make mm. resin cast replicas of what will ultimately be injection molded um, multi-component assemblages so we were doing that as as amalgam model makers the general model making company yeah. we were doing that um for a number of product designers and using that system and at some point during that it must have dawned on my on me that this was you know it was feasible to make model cars big scale yeah using that technique so that's how we came upon that. There's a there is a thread that runs through <laughs> all of the things, yeah. And then have the like presumably materials have like materials and processes must have changed. Like as you know, you said the introduction of this these techniques, but up to now, this must have changed quite a lot with CAD and things like that. Yeah, I mean, not the materials, strangely, you know, not something I thought about for a while, but you know, even that early Tatania, they're slightly different, but not that. Yeah, they're not radically. Um, I think that the the range of resins that we can use to cast to replicate tires and clear windscreens and you know headlight lenses yeah. and so forth, that has evolved. But that probably reached its you know that was ripe and pretty much you know had arrived where it is now at, by nineteen ninety something like that. There's a huge mm. range of resins around by then. Um, but the biggest thing is CAD. Um, when we started making, for instance, the first Formula One cars, we just got 2D drawings from Williams or Jordan. Okay, yeah. So even when we started with Ferrari in 1998, we were still just getting 2D. <clears throat> and mm. it, it, they were, by that time, using CAD to design the car. Yeah. But they weren't about to share that with <laughs> anyone yeah, yeah. for obvious reason. And it took a, a, a period of time before we actually developed the trust and they started to share that, uh, the, the full CAD with us. So that's a major change, you know, that we started off with 2D and now we're just getting full CAD for whatever car. Um, or we, and then another parallel change is that um, when we're making classics, that we do a, a digital scan. We just started okay. the development process for a Aston Martin DB5 mm. uh, about a a week and a half ago and a scan was done on uh, the, the customer's car the, the customer who's kicking off the, the project with an order for his car yeah he was there in new york just a bit north of new york at uh, bedford hills um and he's got his db5 stored at haggerty's uh, garage and social i don't okay. know if you've heard about that i've not so. come across it no you should definitely talk to them. <laughs> it's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> Love it. I mean, you know, just an amazing, uh, they've got locations in something like four or five spots in the States. Yeah. I mean, it, essentially it's a storage spot for your, you know, your precious car. Yeah. Um, but you can kind of hang out there and. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People have events, get your car serviced, 
whatever other, you know, yeah, all the stuff you want are all available there. But a beautiful location anyway. And um, so we digitally scanned this DB5 um, interior and exterior and engine bay. And then we've captured in 3D data, you know, really accurately, I mean, ridiculously accurately to a very small fraction of a millimeter of accuracy. Yeah. Um, the, it, it's, I, I checked out actually because we would, the, the partners who did the actual scanning process, they, uh, have used, they were using a particular Creaform hand scanner that we haven't seen before. And I just wanted to check out what the accuracy was. And it's to about a 40th of a millimeter. That's the accuracy. Pretty small. So, you know, more than we need because we're going <laughs> to, yeah. we're going to shrink it down to one eighth scale anyway. Yeah. I suppose, you know, at yeah. least a quarter. So uh, that's I guess ridiculously over accurate. Uh, that... And we'll take a, a thousand pictures at the same time, you know. Or, mm. But that, that's, you know, parallel to that evolution of the availability of CAD for us to make models. You've yeah. got the evolution of that scanning technology, which is really, that's grown fast. Um, so when you get given, okay, let's say this DB5, it's been scanned down to a 40th of a millimetre, which presumably then means actually the, the sort of scan needs to be cleaned because if there's a bit of dirt on the car, you've got a big chunk of dirt in your scan and you're like, okay, and you've got a smooth, you know, sort of do some cleaning and whatnot of the, um, of the final thing. Um, how, and I, I guess it's probably depends, but how much detail do you go to in the models in terms of like stuff you can't see? Like how far apart can you take a, take a car? We're, we're not, that's not our shtick, you know, that's not our, yeah. our approach to model making. We're really wanting to model everything you can see. Okay. So that it is really a perfect representation. You know, yeah. the target being that you, if you take a picture of it, it's next to impossible to tell the difference between the model and the real car. Yeah. And there are people who are, you know, really tremendously interested in doing, I mean, there's, you know, aircraft modelers who put all the rivets on the interior of the, you know, and then they <laughs> yeah. seal it up at the end. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. 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 I mean, come on. Now, now that is really, that's something that, you know, I totally understand the thinking and the kind of passion yeah. for doing that, but it's not what we do. What our, our yeah, thing yeah. is to put in all of the effort, all of the concentration into the, and when we say the visible parts, that means if you open the bonnet and, engines yeah. in there you know we're really going crazy on the engine detail so it's not you know sometimes you do do what we call curbside models that don't have any opening doors or bonnet mm-hmm. and that's fine then you're not going to be seeing it underneath yeah. any or inside you know but the if we do do that if we've got opening parts then we're really fully showing everything that you can see when you open those parts yeah how did you get the so it sounds like from the beginning you've sort of aimed or pitched yourselves from the very very beginning at the sort of the high-end making high-end models yes. and then presumably that over time has then led to some of these partnerships because you're just like well, we're going to make the best we can and not do anything lower than that yeah and i think that is if there was one thing that sort of defines who we are and you know what we want to be it mm. is that that we just love working with the most exciting, the best, you know, and that informs 
the choice of I was talking to our designer um, he does the we're doing a range of little sculptures um, and which is gradually gathering momentum and we'll have a, a range of those and I was talking to the guy who does the designs and um, just trying to bullet point out what it is that you know why what's the selection process for the subjects yeah. you know and it's not you know, that is a major differentiator, I think, between different model companies, as well as the quality, mm. the size and all that stuff is what is it that you want to be doing? You know, for me, it's absolutely about the, the fastest, the, you know, the most yeah. extreme design. It's got to be extreme in some way or the other. Yeah. Um, and not in a sense of extreme because it's got 20,000 rivets, you know, yawn that, yeah. that leaves me very unmoved <laughs> it's, all yeah. about the, it's all about the excitement of the of the experience of the thing whether it's something that is you know if you formula one cars period formula one cars you, you know the, the the kind of connection that you can get to the for me jim clark or mm. you know we're just doing something with jackie stewart at the moment well those those people at nuvolari haven't been able to have a chat with Nuvolari as he's he's yeah. no longer with us. But the um, you know people that are really heroes of their time, yeah. And the connection that you can have, the, the model really kind of takes you to the, mm. all of the other stuff that you've got in your head and heart about those people, or yeah. the period and what was happening. And the more convincing and more beautiful the model is, you know, the better it is, the better it kind of takes you, transports you yeah. to that experience, even though you can't be there for real. So that's really important. Yeah, very, very high end is the most important. And that can be high end in many different ways, but that's the mm. big thing. Has that, has that meant taken you to sort of led you to meeting a lot of people and seeing a lot of cars that you're like, oh, I never thought I would see throughout this process? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I wouldn't, I did, there's lots of people that I haven't met that I would love to have yeah. met. And lots of occasions when I've been sort of struck dumb and useless in a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you know, no conversation because I'm sort of like, you know, all stuck. <laughs> but the, um, I mean, a good example of that, actually, I mean, it's, also, it's not just about the people. I think it's about the cars as well, as you say. Mm. And a great example of that is with Ralph Lauren. So we, we went to scan, digitally scan the, the cars that Ralph Lauren had sent to an exhibition in Paris. He had a, in, in nice. 2009 or 2010, Yeah, um, he had an exhibition in Paris um, and he sent across 17 cars, which were the sort of creme de la creme of his, you know, his, yeah. in his judgment, the creme de la creme of his collection. Which and means they're pretty good. ended up scanning three or four of those in the, um, it, it's the applied arts section of the Louvre. Um, Les Arts Decoratifs. Yeah. Um, so we did. We scanned those in the museum, but the rest of them, we went to his garage in two sessions. Oh, nice. Uh, which is just north of New York, but a stone's throw from the um, Haggerty Garage yeah. and Social, in fact. It's obviously where everybody's crazy about cars. It's the place, out. yeah. Um, and so I got to meet Ralph, which was a not a kind of lengthy conversation or anything, but it was, yeah, <laughs> it was quite interesting meeting Ralph Lauren. Um, and the, I mean, the cars, amazing just to be, especially in that kind of environment when you're, you know, I wasn't doing personally doing the scanning. 
yeah. that would be done and is still done. You know, we bring somebody in to do that. Yeah. Because the technology is evolving all the time and it would be crazy for us to buy into that such a small amount of usage. Yeah. Um, but I also, alongside the scanning going on, I will take of each car about, there it is, Ralph's cars, what a fantastic, beautifully presented as well, aren't they? Yeah. I, I, um, I mean, some serious, serious bits of kit. <laughs> he has such a sick collection. Uh, yeah, just amazing cars. And, and so I was taking photographs. So I took about a thousand photographs of each car, mm. which of mm. course means that I've got to open everything up, get inside, yeah. you know, route around yeah, and just really get fully get up know. close and personal with each of these cars. And I remember being um, the, the 250TR, the Ferrari 250TR that he's got, the Ponting Fender 1957. 57, I think it's 57, um, car that he's got. I remember just photographing that and thinking, I didn't realise, you know, how absolutely fantastic the lines of this car okay, are. Yeah. You know, when you really got to get close and start examining it in that way because you've got to keep looking at different angles and kind of working out how to capture every detail in, in photographs. You realise what amazing beautiful things they are really and even the engine you know the other thing i remember being blown away by on that trip that he's got a um a count trossi we modeled the count trossi mercedes that he's got Mm -hmm. um which is sort of the car that batman would have had if he'd been around okay oh yeah 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 yeah. this is a cool thing (laughs) yeah that's an amazing car but looking at the the engine detail on that and you just think whoa you know the people that were creating same technology actually for the engine and the inlet manifolds, all of those cast yeah. parts. Okay. They're casting in aluminium, not resin, but there's a, you know, there's another thread yeah. joining it all together there. But just the fact that they were never satisfied with just doing something which was functional, they had to, even if they were not actually decorating it in the most obvious way, you know, with whatever ribs or whatever, yeah. you know, some detail, the way, you know, things are, are formed to be more elegant than they need to be, you know, yes. making the, those, those parts wouldn't be able to keep themselves from doing a, a really over the top job on them. It is. Uh, I, you look at some of the designs from this sort of period and some of these cars yes. and you go like, I wish we designers could have this free form ability to design nowadays that they sort of did back then. Cause you couldn't make a car like this. And people wouldn't make a car like this, but like they're so amazing. The to story look back is on. that um, that Count Trossi um, sketched out what he wanted for that car on mm. a napkin uh, while he was having a meal with the I can't remember who the design the yeah. you know maker was, but he gave them the sketch of what he wanted it to look like. No, it's um, so. And your point actually about taking photos, looking around, I, I found this as a photographer, but I've never I've never probably photographed anything to the level that you would for for making the models but i think a lot of people will resonate with let's say even just like washing a car like if you wash a car Mm. like really seriously wash a car you you notice so much stuff and pay attention to loads of things that you just haven't seen before because you're like oh oh what's under there and like you touch the lines (laughs) and everything um when you're doing these cars the the sort of the finish on the car and the, the model that's being represented most of the time is that is that kind of like fresh out of the factory or in terms of like it's got a fresh coat of paint on it um there's no like patina 
And then yeah, has this yeah, changed? Absolutely. That's the that's the general, you know, that's the normal approach. And we, we do also make small editions of weathered models. But I think that that's most people's expectation and desire mm. is that even if it's a race car, that they'll see it, you know, just polished, ready yeah. to get onto the grid before the race starts. Um, but I, you know, th- there's also a, a case for having a weathered, patinaed model, and we do small editions of those, which are, um, you know, additional price. But um, all of that work is done by the team here in Bristol. How much? Sort of, let's say you do, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what you've done that's been a sort of weathered, I feel like you've done some race cars, maybe like a 917, something like that, yes. Um, to to get them to sort of look weathered and whatnot, presumably there is a lot of sort of like artistry to go into that process. There, it, it, we've got two different scales that we're doing weathered editions at. Uh, one to eight, which is you know our core product and the mm. thing we made our name with, and one to eighteen that we started into about four years ago, um, and you know the, the the one to eighteen models will take a good half to three quarters of a day to do each one, yeah, um, and the one to eight scale will be several days for each one, and it is there's a lot of different techniques used, you know, using a an airbrush is the obvious kind of thing for. Mm kind of dirt you know the fine spray of mud grime that you get on car but then there's a whole bunch of kind of special techniques of brushing and dragging and you know (laughs) and it's interesting to see at daytona we're looking at models that we've um we've weathered that raced at daytona yeah is that they seem to get horrendously punished i mean (laughs) even more so than lamar i don't know what daytona drivers were up to i wonder why that is yeah. I wonder what's so specific about Daytona. I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know. It must have been lots of really brutal overtaking. And maybe people are coming from stock car, you know, racing, which yeah. is pretty brutal. A lot of, like, um, hanging behind other cars as well. Yeah, yeah. So you it's, get lots of massive kind of rubber streaks down the side where somebody's wheels are... It's, it's always amazing. I've been to, like, a couple of sort of endurance races and a couple of GT3 ones and stuff like that. And seeing the cars afterwards, it's like they're just... You look at them and they've nowadays they're pretty good with like the duct tape. They have like different colored duct tape for different sections. So they sort of maintain the liveries and stuff. But you look at these yes. cars and you're just like, that is being seriously kind of destroyed, but it's still going around, <laughs> still whatever. Um, and, and then occasionally you'll hear, I think it was like a couple of years ago um, at Le Mans, a, it was an LMP2 car, nearly one outright. Um, I can't remember what team it was. And mm. the car, it, it won its class, but it nearly won the whole thing because everyone else had a bit of a fit. And um, mm. I think it was a Jackie Chan racing car. And the, someone washed the car after the race. But like, n- no one knew that this was ha- going to happen. It was not the plan. And then it, t- it was going to go to like Goodwood to be displayed. And just someone was like, yes. okay, cool. Let's prep the car or whatever. <laughs> I was like, no, don't do it. I've got... I, I... A couple of things. One is the we've got a, a set of photographs that were shared by Mercedes of the W one nine six and nineteen mid nineteen fifties cars, mm. um, which dominated Formula One Grand Prix racing. And you know, back in the day, photographs that are taken probably trackside, I would imagine, and then yeah. they've got a couple of 
guys to hold up a big greasy sheet and wobble it around a bit behind (laughs) with a long exposure in the camera so that the background turns into a sort of slightly mucky blur. Um, And, my God, those cars were absolutely driven to death. You know, I mean, they're just utterly knackered. They look like the kind of car that I would buy for 50 quid in (laughs) You know, they've just been to hell and back, completely worn out. Um, and then the other one is I visited the Audi garage a few years ago um, where they keep all of the significant race cars. Mm. And as much as possible, they keep them without, you know, yeah. as you say, they didn't get, didn't they get didn't washed. Get accidentally <laughs> washed at the yeah. end of the Le Mans race. You know, they managed to get them back to the garage in one piece, so to speak. But, um, and they, you know, the legendarily, I'm sure this isn't true, actually, but if you've got a sensitive nose that you can still smell the champagne on the- <laughs> <laughs> mingled with the mud on nice. the car. Nice, yeah, But they're all, you know, the whole rows and rows of dirty cars, basically. I think there's a lot of, like, value in that. Like, if the cars are never going to get used, which those ones, you know, they're never going to get used again, they're too sort of valuable, maybe they'll do a, a couple of things. But when you can sit in... Let's say you, you bought, yeah, you could sit in a car and let's say Jim Clark drove it and you know that like maybe he was the last person to drive it or like yeah. he's definitely sat yeah, in that yeah. seat and you can see the bum groove and you're like, oh, like, and there's a little scratch where whatever, you know, in the pedal box and stuff. That, that re- those things really do like bring back the that sense of being there, I think, for um, yeah, totally. for a lot of people. With the Ferrari stuff, how did that come about? So um, that's sort of following that, the, the tale of the desire to work with the best. But mm. we, so we started into Formula One with what at the time I thought was the best because yeah. they were winning all the championships. We started with Jordan actually, but so we had a couple of years um, working with Jordan Grand Prix. Yeah. They, were, they were doing reasonably well, I think, at the time. I'm trying to remember where they tended to be on the grid, but you know, I think it was three, four, five, that kind of positioning. Yeah. Um, and and then we, yeah, I think it actually might have been, only been after a year, we started in with Williams. And they, this was 95, um, 6, it was probably 96, 97, 98 that we were working with Williams. Yeah. Um, and we continued after that as well. But they were winning the championship every year and they were massively dominant. Um, Damon Hill, uh, yeah. I mean, that, 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 so yes, that was the dominant car, but it wasn't the most glamorous or the most, you know, exciting. Mm. Kind of pretty, okay, they did have a, a significant history, but not for that long yeah. before that. Anyway, somewhere along the line, um, one of the guys in our team said, you know, we really should be making an effort to connect with Ferrari and see if we can. And, yeah. and Ferrari, everybody was recognizing that in the run up to the to 2000, you know, by 97, 98, 99, Everything was going in a great direction because you had the, the dream team of Jean Todd and, and, and Ross Braun, yeah, um, and Michael Schumacher. So we, you know, it became really it was clear that we needed to get involved with, get in with them, yeah. And I just reached out to them, and it, actually quite good timing, really, in that they were just beginning to recognise the power of the brand beyond selling cars, yeah. I mean, they did have some merchandise, I think, but it was really limited. Mm. And it was all handled, you know, pushed out to, to um, license, Someone, obviously, yeah. the merchandise design and so forth. So, licensees. 
So um, when I got in touch with them, it was they just set up a licensing department called Ferrari Idea, which was the and Ferrari Idea was to take you know what, give us your ideas, guys, you know yeah, how to yeah, extend yeah. the brand. And um, so perfect timing. Only one person in the, the department was one person. <laughs> <laughs> a guy called Vittorio Avogadro. And um, he turned out to be a, yeah, he understood where we were coming from. Mm. The one thing I remember from that is that he was much more impressed by the fact that we'd worked with Norman Foster than he was by the fact that we'd worked with Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite amusing, really. But, I mean, it tells you, you know, that, that that's typical Ferrari, isn't it? That they're very yeah. sort of high-end design-oriented. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we started in with them in 1998. Um, did I think we just made one model of the 98 car and then a small number of the 99 car. And in 2000, the F1 2000, we made, I think it was 200 one-eighth scale models, four mm. editions of 50 that all sold through. How big is a one-eighth scale, like long? 60 centimetres, two feet. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, you started making those ones and then the race cars and then did that just slowly transition over time working so with them for sort of transitioned in jumps really in the sense that the i remember having a meeting in marinello with the guy who was heading up you know some this was probably in about 2003 something like yeah. that and by this time the ferrari idea ferrari licensing and merchandise had really grown in strength and it became a department of half a dozen people you know they're up to about 20 now yeah um and having a meeting with him and he was saying oh um uh, uh, mr uh, the president they would never say uh, <laughs> mr montezemolo so it was montezemolo was always known as the president the so. president fair enough <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a sort of south american republic or something but, yeah very ferrari um, <laughs> so he's, the president says you know we, we'd really like you to make um the, the current range of road cars as well as the GT cars, as well as the race cars. And we just didn't have the capacity or the ability to do that at that time. And then, so eventually we did get around to that in 2005, did so started with modern cars and we've done, so that was the F430 and we've made every Ferrari road car since then. There's been no gaps in the entire range of Ferrari road cars and the GT race cars and the Formula One cars. So we've modeled every single one of them. Um, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
And those are available. We're still making those. We're, you know, going back to the F-130, making those for customers who want a bespoke model yeah. of the car. F-130 doesn't crop up that often, but some of the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. later cars do. Once. Uh, and then we started into doing, you know, shortly thereafter, into doing um, classic cars. Yeah. Which was Ferraris. The iconic ones. And once mm. you've done let's say with the Ferrari, like what, how long does that process take? They say, we've got a new car. Do they send you the CAD model for it? They send us the CAD model. We're just currently um, developing the Daytona SP3. Mm-hmm. We've had the CAD for that for about four months, something like that. So it's pretty early on. In yeah. fact, we started to get the CAD for that before the design was entirely fixed. That's quite so there's no point us getting the CAD for it if it's still very yeah, much in flux, you know, they, they wouldn't do that and there's no yeah. practical reason to do it. Um, but once they've got to the point where it's just a few details that are being refined mm. or material specifications are being considered with the interior, that kind of stuff, then we'll get the CAD. We'll get a few updates along the way, you know, of any elements that are a rear wing, yeah. perhaps, you know, that's suddenly taken a little bit of a design revision. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll get those. Um, and then that... The development process overall to get to a batch of models is around nine months usually. Can okay. be done quicker, but it's a real, you know, bit of an ache to do that. Um, yeah, so the, the steps are we get the CAD, we rework the CAD in the sense that, um, hang on a second, there we go, let's get rid of an annoying little pop up. We, we get the CAD and then we rework that CAD so that it works for the model. So right. clearly, you know, we're not doing that thing. You know, there have been a few insane model makers in history that have tried to replicate every component yeah. of a car yeah. and then build it all back together, you know. Build the engine. Yeah, that's stuff, not what yeah. we do. We're, we're looking at how do we best make the, the exterior, all the visible parts, yeah. you know, work. What's the best way to make them break into parts that allows us to finish right. the paint finishes, the leather, whatever it is, you know, on and have it all come together in a satisfactory fashion. So there's a bunch of work that we've got to do on the CAD, which is re- removing a whole bunch of things that are yeah. relevant to us because they're completely invisible and then adding a few things that allow us to right. put it together. And so and fix it together. what sort of, and, and the, the CAD drawing you get, does that have like bolts on it and stuff like that? It could do. Um, it, it most... What we usually do, you know, if it's rivets, if it's a classic car, we're talking about rivets. Yeah. Then, depending on what kind of rivets they are and whether they are, you know, if they if they're clean metal rivets, which sometimes does occur, yeah. then we wouldn't want to mould them in as part of the of a cast of a, let's yeah. say, you know, the nose cone of a Formula One car from nineteen fifties. Um, you know, if it's painted, then we'll make the rivets part of the casting and paint over the whole okay. thing because that's what happened in the real yeah. car. If it's a, uh, you know, if they're bare metal rivets on a painted finish, then we'll put those in separately. After yeah, yeah, yeah. Drill them and put them in. And like this process of you get this sort of the CAD model come to you and presumably there's like 20,000 parts or whatever it is that makes up the car. And then, yeah. it, or, or um, you know, many more or whatever. And then... What does that sort of come down to? How many sort of parts or components are in your finished, let's say, the eighth scales? 
Like roughly, it, I know it probably will change. Yeah, lots of variation there because um, sort of surprisingly, but actually when you think about it, not so surprisingly, the simplest car to make, and that's reflected in the prices, you know, our prices are all reflecting the time of effort that goes in, you know, yeah. the hours and the number of parts and materials that go in there. Um, but the simplest thing is a Formula One car, Model mm-hmm. One. Not so much the classics because they're sometimes horrendously complex once you take cars off. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah. And then, you know, medium in terms of the number of parts will be a modern road car. Yeah. Uh, and then the most complex are classics. If you, you know, the Bugatti 57SC, a 250 GTO. Yeah. Those are 250 GTO. I think I'm right in saying it's got a model's got 2,240 parts in it. Okay. Um, a Formula One car has got a lot less. It's probably, you know, just heading towards a thousand. Yeah. Uh, and, and a GT road car, you know, any of the classics, huge numbers of parts because mm. the, the, there's a lot more visible on a car like that. When you yeah. open the bonnet, you're seeing right the way through yeah. to the, you know, to a, a, a plate or maybe straight through to the tarmac underneath. Yeah, I totally um, get that. Yeah, just a lot more visible. And then are they, how are they, are they paint, are all the parts painted and then put together or are the cars part assembled? Is it a blend? They're all painted. I mean, apart, of course, from bare metal. Yeah. You know, if you've got spun wheels from a 1960s Formula One car, they'll be turned in aluminium. Okay. The yeah. rims of the classics, uh, the, those are, are CNC turned. Are they? And they have little tiny pockets. We machine, for each nipple, we machine a little pocket in from the back of, you know, the tyre side of the rim. Yeah. And then a nipple with a, a hemispherical face goes into the back of that pocket okay. so that it's visible on the inside of the, you know, the spoke side of the rim. Um, so uh, a 250 GTO wheel has got 72 spokes and 72 <laughs> nipples and about 20 other parts that go into the hub. So, you know, you're up to a, a well over 150 parts yes. per wheel. It's crazy. But so apart from those bits that are bare metal um, or they're, they could be not that we, we we very rarely, never, I think, use leather mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, real leather, because it is just grossly overscaled and looks ridiculous, yeah. looks like Barbie doll. So <laughs> all of those finishes are sprayed. We do sometimes use, for some of the more outlandish Lamborghini interiors, I remember, we actually managed to source materials that replicate a woven seat. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabric. But tiny. But that's pretty unusual, actually, to do that. So nearly all of that interior stuff is sprayed. Yeah, so we're spraying all of the parts separately and then assembling it. And then the only, you know, getting to your point, really, the, the, the only finishing that we're doing on a race car is deckling it all after it's okay, assembled. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't be putting the decals on it. Or as the Americans like to keep pointing out to me, decals. <laughs> this is great amusement and merriment when I start talking about decals with American colleagues. Is that the same process sort of as as if I was doing it at home, you know, maybe a bit of like soapy water, moving totally. around? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got a lot of clevernesses that we, you know, little yes. tweaks and techniques and stuff, obviously. Um, one of the things that we do, which I think people probably still do, you know, do do now on, self-assembly models is that we're replicating a carbon fiber, visible carbon fiber 
we're doing that with the decals as well. Oh, okay. um, and yeah. we've got a range of, we'll print the decals to match the, the carbon pattern because they have huge mm. numbers of variations. And we lay all that on so that you get the right joint, yeah. you know, the, the right okay. line, alignment of the yeah. pattern and so forth. Some of that stuff that the Italians are absolutely crazy about, like uh, Pagani, yeah. you know, the yeah, yeah, yeah. carbon fiber out of this world. So if yeah. okay, so if you were doing like a carbon bonnet, like do you do do you do any cars that are like painted carbon where you can see the carbon on the outside, like a I don't yeah. know, like a Bugatti or something? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and so is that how do you do that finish? Because that can't be a decal. No, that is a decal, and then it's given a, a hefty old coat of clear lacquer. Oh, back. Oh, okay. So it's not actually that dissimilar. The difference is that our pattern is a decal and the real one is the carbon fiber. But that's exactly what they'll do with the with the real thing as well. And you can tint, you know, sometimes we've Bugatti, for instance, oft times have tinted yeah. lacquers over their carbon fiber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, got one particular um, Ferrari customer, he's one of their most important customers, um, who's all of his cars have a a sort of purple blue tint to the carbon okay. fiber. All right. Which Ferrari refused to do for him <laughs> on the grounds that it wasn't tasteful enough. Oh, and wow. And he, he was, always takes his cars along to have the lacquer stripped yeah. off, you know, brand new LaFerrari, take it down the, the refinishing shop. There's two, there's, there's like a few stories like this of this sort of situation mm-hmm. where, Ferrari mm. often, even on the like things like LaFerrari and LaFerrari Perti, you can only get it in like five colors. Yeah. And and they're like, no, you can only get it in five colors. It's like, but I want it in a different color. So it comes out of Ferrari, goes down the road, goes back, and then it gets changed. You're like, <laughs> fair enough. Crazy. Now, I, I think that my, you know, what I'm seeing yeah. in the last few years is that they've really pulled back on that kind of okay. stuff where they're, you know, I, the, uh, the whole point of that was a kind of um, an indicator of the requirement for respect. Mm, okay. You're yeah. only going to get to do what we tell you you're allowed yeah. to do. You know, we're in control of this situation. <laughs> and I think that there's been a much softer, yeah, probably that was nurtured by Montezemolo gradually mm. over the years since he left. You know, it's, it's kind of reset to normal. Yeah. <laughs> so you uh, can get, even if you have got some horrible, tasteless idea, they will in fact do it for you. Yeah. 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 Which seems like somewhat fair. Like, it's you're, you're spending the money. Like, if it's not a massive effort, you'd think, yeah, why not? Seems entirely reasonable, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so with, with the Ferraris, like the production cars, you can now, can you spec it as part of your road car as a tick box option? Yes, only since last year we started into a, a program thing. I mean, we've been making bespoke models for owners mm. and significantly started with Ferrari with that way before anybody else. Yeah. Um, we must have started that pretty soon, about 2006, I think, something like that, with the F430. Yeah. And um, so we've been doing that for a long time. And Ferrari have been tremendously I, I, one of the things I do love about Ferrari is that at the same time as being, you know, that attitude of demanding respect yeah. and being very exclusive, that once you are invited in to be part of the team, they're extremely collaborative and, and That's pragmatic about things as well. They don't get obsessed with 
irrelevant details. Mm. They tune into the really important ones. I think that's a, you know, that's an amazingly powerful design approach as well. He's just not getting sucked into obsession yeah. about something, but kind of keeping your eyes on the, it's the experience that counts, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. So historically that would mean that there were all kinds of really annoying kind of QC <laughs> issues. Um, but it, you know, latterly you know, they've retained the good side of that and kind of taken it forward. And, um, yeah, so we've, as I said, we've been making those bespoke models for a long time, but they've invited us in just recently. And obviously I was going to say that even before this recent development where it's become a tick box on the, uh, during the order process, that we were always invited along to Ferrari racing days where the most significant, that's a really interesting mix of people at Ferrari mm. racing days. We get to display models in the, um, the VIP lounge okay cool yeah so there you get all drivers the the team owners yeah. the, the the they demand support from a local dealership so all the important people from the dealership would be there um and fantastic you know that was a tremendously important invitation that mm. we had about 10 years ago to start coming to the ferrari race yeah, that's cool. so that kind of connection and collaboration has been there all the time but a couple of years ago we started a program where now when you're ordering your Ferrari, you can order the model at the same time. It all goes through a, um, a process. If you come to us directly for a one eight scale bespoke model of your Ferrari, we can go to Ferrari and we can get the, the specification from okay. them. They're happy to share that with us. But by doing it at the time of ordering, it means that as the, as the specification is hardened, we can get the, the spec that we need. Yeah properly packaged up as early as possible and the other new thing about that is that they felt that there was a, a desire that even though most of the owners you know if you're buying a couple of hundred grand worth of car yeah. and you're lavishing another 50 or 100 grand on the, the spec yeah. you know yeah on this and that yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> throwing in a model for ten thousand pounds or whatever it is a bit more than that um shouldn't be that much of an issue so it's not about the price it's about the fact um but they thought that 112 scale a bit smaller than the 8 scale yeah um would really be a a, a great addition to the, to the offering mm. so we've done that and that's now just for ferrari we, people can't come to us directly for the 112 scale what about you're ordering the car. do you do you there's a chiron in 112 on the Website, but is that there that's is. an old that model? A, that was not a bespoke um, model. It was just a limited edition. Okay. Um, and I mean, it might be that we, it's always very difficult to break into a new, in this world of models, it's all about, you know, is it, is it old cars? Is it race yeah. cars? Is it you know, new cars, Formula One, whatever. And then also the massive divider between different companies and their offerings is scale. Okay. So for us, when we started doing 18th scale, that was four years ago, we only really started to see that work properly for us, profitably, last year. Okay. And everything before that was just building the awareness and the, you know, the people's willingness to buy something with a different brand on it at a particular scale. And also at a higher price, because we're doing, you know, all of our models are hand on heart, you know, better than anything else yeah. you can buy. So. It means that the price is always yeah, higher. Yeah, priced accordingly, so yeah. Struggle, that barrier to get over. <laughs> um, but 112 scale, 
you know, that's we, we dabbled in it with the, um, the Chiron mm. and we also did a LaFerrari at 12 scale. Didn't really work out for us and we sort of dropped, pulled back from it. But now with Ferrari saying, look, we want this to happen, yeah. we're going to support you. We're in there and I think we'll find that other 12 scale models will follow in due course. Mm. So what, okay, what is how big is a 112? A uh, 112 is about two foot, 60 yeah. centimetres long. So it's two thirds of that. Okay, that's quite so a good it's size. About 16 inches, isn't it? I like that size. That sort of. Yeah, and it's got, that, that's right. You know, Ferrari's estimation was that lots of customers would prefer, you know, that it was, it was slightly not something you'd normally associate with somebody buying a Ferrari, but it would be a more modest yes. kind of display, well, you know. That there's definitely something about, you know, you have to be willing to be visibly crazy about your car to want to have a 1.8 scale model. You do. So it definitely filters out. The- it, it kind of needs its own parking space at that point. Like, it's like, it's big <laughs> enough, but it's got to be and on a plinth. We've had a lot of uh, events like the Ferrari racing days. You yeah. often get guys who come up and go, yeah, yeah, I've got to have one of those. And then their wife is kind of following behind yeah. and says, what are you talking about? Where do you want to put that? <laughs> yeah. I have um, some 146th, maybe, um, scale, like models like 43, of 43, yeah. 143. Um, of, I've tried to get one of every car I've owned, which is a, a, and roughly the roughly the right specs, basically possible. Um, but those are dinky, like they're small enough that I've got four kind of parked in, you know, 30 centimetres space and it's, it's not a problem. I like yeah. the the bigger ones. I think probably one eighteenth is is that that's probably quite a broad. Is it one eighteenth that you could sort of generally buy yeah, from a lot of stuff? Um, yeah, and then it's about nine or ten inches long. Yeah, that I, I like that. But then I have seen a couple of the. I I think whenever I've seen some amalgam models in various places, in Joe McCarthy showroom. I think I saw a Ferrari one at one point in time. You get to see so much more when they get bigger. Like, it, they really start yes. to, like, yeah, yeah. pop out as well. It is, I, you know, there are some really crazy, uh, oft-times Japanese um, model makers that, um, that this last, that's this weekend, sorry, is Retromobile mm. in Paris. And Retromobile, we've, we've got a little display there with our yeah. French sales agent, Gregory, um, and he'll be working the crowd and getting around to speak to the ACO yeah. and whoever, you know, to talk about developing relationships. Um, but there's a, there's a, a some sort of upstairs merchandise spot at the Retro Mobile, which is massive, actually, absolutely massive aftermarket stuff. Mm. There's a lot of models there. And I'm always amazed how many little small garage sized operation Japanese companies there okay. are who are selling 143rd scale models at insane prices, <laughs> you know, like more expensive than our 18 scales. <laughs> and it's, so, you know, 10, 15, 20 grand for a, and wow. you, you just look at them and think that is absolutely insane. Now, the thing is that you can use a, you know, you can use your eyeglass and get in there and you, yeah. it is really amazing. So, you know, the value in, in, is in the miniaturization part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like the astounding ability to make something so bloody tiny with so many parts. <laughs> yeah, of it. yeah. it, no matter how close you look, it still looks right. Um, but the big advantage of the one eight scale 
is that it seems, and that's why we honed in on it. We've been, sometimes we're asked to make one fifth scale. Mm. So for, we, we make um, editions of models for Richard Mille mm-hmm. uh, each, each time, he, not every time, but about once every two years when he's doing a limited edition watch. Yeah. Um, he wants to, you know, and it's in partnership with a McLaren yes. or now Ferrari or whatever. Uh, you know, he'd like to, to gift, it's not exactly gifting a model, but the model gets kind of bundled with the watch, okay. if you like. Yeah. My lovely way of putting yeah, it, yeah. bundling it. It's the, <laughs> but um, he really likes one fifth scale, okay. which is very typically Napoleonic French, isn't it? <laughs> it's, a, it's a metric scale, yeah. like five. And that's bigger. And on the face of it, you'd think, oh, bigger, must be better. But I don't think so. And I'm not the only one who thinks yeah. that. Is that they, they weirdly, that bigger size, it starts to look a bit toy-like somehow, even yeah. if it's got all the same detail. I know what you mean. It just doesn't work. Because I guess the bigger you get, the more it's going to compare to the real car rather than be, being like a shrunk car. And there's something about yeah, tiny yeah. things. And then as you get so it's, it's, that it's realm, that. you're like, ah, oh, okay, this is not real but it's getting towards the size mm. that it should be real. Now, this is a weird thing, is that when you then go bigger to one quarter scale, suddenly it comes comes back into, <laughs> you know, somehow it seems to work better. I mean, this could be all Give in your crazy head. Who knows? Part, <laughs> but I, I don't seem to be the only one. And for one eighth scale, this is something I noticed many years ago. Jordan, um, when Jordan closed shop, when he sold mm. out, they had a um, a final kind of event. I can't remember where that was, but anyway, it was a, a race circuit event. And they took along, you know, all of the Jordans, you know, sort of goodbye Eddie yeah. kind of a thing. Um, and they had a row of cars in the garage, you know, a number of garages with, with the open air. Yeah. Probably a good one, actually. Anyway, they had a row of the cars in the garage and and with models beside them. And in, if you put the, if you looked at the models, you'd immediately sort of, and if you compared one model with another, you could really much more easily understand the kind of whole design okay. and how it evolved yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. from one car to another. Much more difficult to take that in with a real car. Yeah. You're only ever looking at one, unless you step back, you know, 20 meters. Yeah. You're not seeing the whole thing as one vision. It's just you're looking at, you're focusing in on detail. So it is, eight scale is, very satisfying. It's a really good scale to work at. Mm. It's, 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 it's so funny how there's all like, there's like various bits that are picked by different people for whatever reason is there, like yeah, yeah. your niche. Um, how, materials wise, you, you said they're predominantly the same, but you're saying you're using um, metal for the wheels and stuff. So a lot of the metal parts, metal, or is it only like the wheels? Um, it does depend what it is. So it's to do with the finish. That's on, you know, spun aluminium or machined aluminium is really difficult to replicate in any other way than just making it real aluminium. Okay. So we'll go to extraordinary lengths to make aluminium parts that are really polished bare mm. aluminium out of the real metal. Um, Whereas, if you look at gearbox or engine casings, which are rough casting you know, uh, yeah. aluminium sand castings, um, it's incredibly difficult to make those look correct at scale casting them as aluminium. And it's got okay. massive restrictions on, you know, the technology really 
restrain, you know, reduces your ability to make it look correct. Yeah. <clears throat> so those, we would nearly always cast them in resin and then use a spray paint finish. Yeah. And that it comes, one of the things that came from the original architectural model making is that we became, as a company, you know, we kind of built up a skill set about replicating finishes on buildings using mm. spray techniques. And that was kind of carried across. It's involved okay. lots yeah. since then, but that's where that originates from, is the desire to make things in the most appropriate material to make them, you know... Look real, but in the scale. But at the scale, but also get a, a finish on them that is incredibly convincing. So we, uh, we use... Um, CNC machining, you know, I mentioned about rims and spokes and nipples and so forth, um, you know, and, and other kind of really polished machined parts. I'm trying to think of examples for that, but most there's not that many. It's mostly wheels, actually. Mm. Um, and then we also use um, what the British call white metal casting, but everybody else calls spin casting. But it's a using a, um, a pewter alloy that you cook up mm. to its melting point, which is much, much lower than, because it's an alloy, it shows them yeah. to its low melting point. It's a really low melting point. And then you pour that into a mold, into a centrifuge, into a, a, a pair of rubber discs okay. that you've, you, you've put your, your patterns, the, you know, the original parts that are going to be replicated between the two rubber discs, you cook them up yeah. and the two halves of the discs become a mating yep. pair of moulds, you know, like clamshell pair of moulds. And you spin that pair of rubber discs, clamp together, pour the molten metal in, and it pushes out yep. into the, through channels in the rubber to, to create the pieces. So we use quite a lot of that. And that's a classic that used to be used in, you know, 19, until the 1970s or 80s, I think, when mm. cast really took over. But there used to be quite a lot of small-scale models that were made using white metal casting. So we're using that for some small metal parts. And it's got a very nice finish on it that looks a lot at scale. Yeah. Like a um, foundry cast real part. Interesting. Does that answer the question? What sure. are the, yeah, 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 I think yeah. It, it does. And I can see, I can totally see how, like if you cast something large, the surface finish is the same as if you cast it tiny, but it doesn't look like a tiny version of the big one. It's just the same. And, yes, totally. And I, you know, I think the really kind of obvious and kind of convincing example of that is that leather one that I used earlier. Mm. Is that sometimes people say to us, "Can you put a leather? You know, can you make leather seats for me?" Yes, we can. No problem. We can actually do that. Not a problem. Um, but it doesn't. It just looks rubbish. Yeah. I mean, it looks like a. It, it really does have Barbie doll written all over it. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. And we did so many years ago with the first Aston Martin that we did, the DB9, I think it was. Um, we were asked for the, the, the leather supplier, which is um, Lock of Weir. I think it's Lock of Weir. That's the right name. But they, yeah. they're the sort of biggest competitor to Connolly's and, yeah. and, um, and the Italian leather suppliers. Um, but they were a partner of Aston Martin. And they said, could you make a DB9 model completely covered in leather? Which <laughs> <Okay. And> we did. <laughs> Which was really surprisingly, because it wasn't, you know, trying to look like something. Yeah. Like it wasn't a model seat, which you want to look correct. Yeah. It was it was just a weird art object. 
Um, and it worked really well, actually. We had them scarf the leather down to half a millimetre thick. And then um, I did quite a bit of it. Is to just make the leather slightly damp and it forms. Really okay, yeah. And, stuff, and just bonded it on with white glue, with wood glue. Nice. Worked a few times. That's great. That's quite cool. Do you have moving parts? So moving parts in the sense of opening bonnets. Okay. Um, Steering boots, wheel? Doors. But, and wheels, yes. Um, although on Formula One cars, we tend to screw the wheels to the base because they're so heavy and the suspension is so fragile. Okay. Once it's scaled down, it starts to get more and more fragile. Yeah, yeah. Um, but generally speaking, we'll, I mean, we're just about to launch uh, an Aston Martin DB4 GT Zagato. Yeah. And we presented the model to the designer, Julian Nunn, who was the designer working on the continuation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he being the Aston Martin's, you know, most deeply knowledgeable expert on the DB4 Giscato. Um, And he looked at it and said, you know, the one thing that, because of course they're all different, aren't they? Mm. I mean, those cars, particular cars, everyone's hammered out, you know, sheets of metal. So they're all radically different. And he said that they had scanned, when they were doing the continuation, they scanned six different cars to just to see if they could okay, nail yeah. down the ideal, you know, was the <laughs> one they want to use. And that, so eventually they used a combination of all of them. Okay, spec, interesting. But, they didn't just pick um, one. He, he said that not only were they utterly different from each other, but they were also not symmetrical in the sides. <laughs> left and right sides were all quite different. Yeah. So um, the, the car that we've modelled is one VEV, which is one of the two really famous cars. Two VEV is a bit more famous, perhaps. So we've modelled one VEV. We scanned that car, and we've precisely replicated the rear wheel positioning within the rear wheel arch. Um, but when I visited the car to do the photo shoot of it, I walked into the garage it was in, and I immediately thought, whoa, that's really weird. It's got a very unsatisfactory space between the rear wheel and the rear wheel arch. Yeah. And you know that car designers, are, this is one of their obsessions. They're, you know, like getting that spatial yeah. relationship between the wheel and the arch. Yeah, and, you know, very it's important. It's got to be absolutely perfect, you know. And um, so Julian Nunn looked at this and said, oh, it's, I don't, I don't, it might be right, but I don't like it. <laughs> it's only, and when you look at the other cars, then it's not right. You yeah. know? There's, there's, for some reason, the wheels on one VEV are set further in. It could well be that it's because the, the rims, the offset of the rim to the hub is yeah, different. Yeah, you can, yeah. When you lace the spokes together, you can bring the wheel in around. You know? <laughs> so... Um, we're just in the process of making some adjustments to meet his requirements. Well, that's, that's an interesting point that, because there's some manufacturers, not all, but they, they launch a car and you'll see some press photos and it will have a wheel gap that looks normal, small, looks, looks really good. And then you see the final road car and it's a bit different. It's often seen yeah. on Ferraris. Um, yeah. So in the models, let's say of the Ferraris, let's say, I don't know, 458, 488, etc. Is that a 100% exact representation of a delivered car or is it the more slightly optimised because it looks better version? We haven't got, it's not that we've got a policy or a sort of yeah, 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 yeah. strict 
rugged route that we follow with that. But I think that we're we're always working with the original CAD, mm. and you probably expect that to be more like you know. I'm guessing that for the show, you know, yeah. the display car, Geneva, and so on, that they're just tweaking the suspension. To, yeah make it look sweeter. put some bricks in the boot or whatever they're just like they yeah, want them to be a quite, bit lower yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> a few lead blocks in there yeah um yeah so we're following the what we see in the photo shoot and in the yeah. cab which i think is much more likely to be the final delivered yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's an interesting one have you have we had any sort of unexpected struggles or things that you've had to overcome over the last, well, quite a long time that it sort of popped up that you didn't expect? Yeah. Almost every model. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, that's not true, but there are, you know, I, I reckon the, the smooth paths are the exception. Mm. Because there's so much, you know, particularly if you're dealing modern GT cars and modern Formula One cars, are actually the easiest because the data is so nailed down. Okay, there. yeah. Um, I mean, I'll tell you what, as I'm just saying that, I was just thinking Formula One cars, is that one of the very early days when we were doing the first Ferraris, the 99 and 2000 cars, that they, at the time, were using a, a fluorescent paint. Okay. And if you, you won't remember it, Sam, but you might. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, okay, yeah. But it was a... They, they Marlborough, you know, they, they yes, yeah, yeah, created. Yeah, yeah. The legend was that we heard from the guys at Ferrari that the, the colour was created, that Montezemolo went into the paint shop yeah. at Maranello and said, guys, we need to make a new colour for Marlborough. <laughs> um, and they said, well, what do you want? He said, show me the paint cupboard. And he said, <laughs> he, said, he said, "Nice. I want it to be a bit like that fluorescent red and a bit like the Rosso Corsa. So they just took two tins, mixed them up together. That was it, yeah. And what I do know is that that paint, back in the day, they were being sponsored by PPG paints. Ferrari. Mm. That was actually on the car, you know, PPG as a brand on the under tray. Um, but they were actually using Glacierit. Oh, paints. cheeky. <laughs> yes. Um, and I don't know why that was, just because it was an established yeah. venue where they were with the glazier paints, I have no idea. Um, but they, um, we had our paints for the models supplied by Glazierit as well, because that is a nice, easy path to making sure you put it, you know, perfectly right. And um, they told us that this, you know, this was the mix that they got told to supply for everybody who was doing models. Of, you yeah. Know, actually, we'd be the only ones making models at that level. So, but it would be show cars or any other usage of this color. Mm. They supplied people the right paints and they were not paints. These two that Montezemolo, I mean, you know, yeah. this is the legend, but it sounds totally feasible. Um, that what they, what he chosen were two incompatible paint systems. One of them was a two pack. And the other one was a um, a base coat system. And they just bung them together and it kind of worked. But what happened was, and we ran up against this, so this, I'm answering the question about the kind of issues because it went on for ages, um, is that it, it would behave really badly if you, when you put a final lacquer coat on this dodgy mixture yeah. of two paints that shouldn't really be mixed together, then the, the lacquer coat would cause all kinds of problems. And we got, um, we got, problems with it crazing very not crazing 
it more than it had a sort of slightly very very subtle kind of wrinkle finish on okay it. we'd have to buff it back <laughs> it's interesting to see those models come back now because we every now and then we'll get one of them you know from 20 plus years okay. ago um, coming back for a, a repair or whatever yeah. you know that we get sight of one and the paint's absolutely fine but in the it hasn't gone nasty over a period but it was driving us mad at the time when it was <laughs> get stuff out the door so that's the kind of thing that can happen um i i think the other the, the real challenge is you know the more of, more often than not the kind of things that you come up against are uh we, we just recently created the first one eight scale for gt40 mm. models and the thing about that is that you've not got you know the car that you're using as the basis is the right chassis but it's again it's been through you know, back All in the day, stuff. you'd yeah. finish with it at Le Mans, wouldn't you? And go, okay, let's, you know, repurpose this, tear the body off yeah. and replace it with whatever. You know, even if he didn't, even if that wasn't part of the story, a complete rebodying, there there must certainly be numerous accidents. Yep. And, you know, so by the time we get to scan it now, nine, it's been modified to hell, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's really just um, very, very difficult to know. And sometimes we'll do that with, you know, that car is, one of the examples is that you look at it and the data that we're getting, you just know that it's not quite right from the, mm. you know, from the scan. And from That's the, in- so we have to go back to original photographs and start to feed that back into the equation. And where do you pick that point in time? With Do you generally go, okay, we're going to do that car, or you go, we're going to try and do the first or the last iteration or, or what? Yeah, definitely choose a, a specific event mm. um, with, with formula one cars that we were making at the time of the race you know sometimes yeah. we wouldn't i mean it's really hard to know during a season which you know you want to get a model made and meet people's requirement for a model yeah. during that season but you don't know how it's all going to go and quite often it'll be the, the winning race when it in abu dhabi or yeah. whatever it's the one that really you should have modeled but you need to get something out before that so sometimes we make generic launch cars okay. at the beginning of the season. Um, not the launch car, but the first race car, but it's still a, it's a generic car. Yeah, yeah. But it's certainly in terms of classics, absolutely got to be the specific race day. And then you have to dig deep to find the archive photography to, to let you know what's going on. <laughs> and then start making. <laughs> if someone wants to get a car made, there's presumably all the cars you've made to date, not necessarily all of them are available, but like, let's just say it was Ferraris because you've done a bunch of production cars. Mm. What do they do? They just call you up and say, I want a 430 in, in a certain color or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll ask them for I, I, F430s, very unusual. I think we've only made one or two over the last <laughs> couple of years. Um, and, but, you know, more... More usually, it's something more recent than that. The vast majority of the bespoke models that we're making up. Uh, actually, that's not true because a lot of classics. Um, Ferrari Dino, mm-hmm. um, you know, you get a fair few orders for bespoke versions of those. Um, and just call that person back. <laughs> yes, so classics, we are relying on a set of photographs of the real car. Yeah. And as much specification data, you know, paint reference and so forth. Um, but usually those cars, somebody will have 
you know, they, they've probably had it resprayed or somewhere along the line. You know, there'll be a reference yeah. for the actual paint that was used on it. Uh, so usually pretty easy to get that, pull that all together, but not as easy as a, you know, a current Ferrari or McLaren or one from the last few years. We can get the full specification yeah. from Ferrari or McLaren. And that makes life really a lot easier. So, yes, people can give us a call, send us an email, um, we'll ask them for the specification. If they haven't got it, um, just give us the bid number and we'll get that for them. And then we set the process going, which is a lot longer than we'd like it to be. But then, you know, it does take a long time. How long? So How long? It's at the moment, it's around about 30, 35 weeks from order to delivery of okay. bespoke this car. And then if, if what if someone wants to do a car you haven't done? So we can make unique models, and we have done that. We've made um, one-offs, uh, uh, the Ferrari th- 1967 312 uh, Formula 1 car, mm-hmm. um, the, before we'd actually made the additional 1.8 scales, we made um, a, a one-off for the owner of us, one of the yeah. GT40s. Um, and those generally were suggesting to people that we make those at a bigger scale because the, the cost of bringing it all together just to make a one-off model yeah. is insane. Um, there's another way that we go about doing this is that if, if somebody wants us to make a, a model of their car and if we feel that that car will in future be, you know, it's worth it, yeah. wider customer base, yeah. then we invite them to invest in it and, paying tranches for the development okay. process because that's the only way we can, you know, the cash flow is always an issue for yeah. us. So it helps us out with the cash flow. We get to the point where we make the first models and then we pay them back in tranches as we sell each, each model. Okay. Um, but they, you know, unique one-offs, we'd always suggest somebody has that in one-fifth scale or that, as I say, they like one-fifth scale very much, but better still one-quarter scale, one to four, which is monster, you know, four feet mm. long. Great. Love it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's very high prices. We can do the the price for doing that um, a one off. If we we can do a curbside model with no opening parts, yeah. And it, depending on what the car is, you know, that starts at about fifty five, sixty thousand okay. pounds. And then if we do the whole shebang, yeah. you know, the fully opening and in engine bay detailed, interior detailed, you're up into the hundred and fifty thousand. Wow. So. It's quite a commitment. <laughs> it is, but then, I get it. I get why people do it. Not like not just the price. Yeah, like yeah. You can see the process, um, and and I think you know it, it, it depends how wealthy you are. Exactly, it? It is that you know the people that we're talking about are not stupid. They're not going to waste money on something that is you know they'd, they'd like to hope, and I would expect that the value of the model will increase yeah. over time. At the very least, kind of keep its real value, you know. Over the- and sort of, I guess, sort of track with the real car price a little bit, like yeah, yeah. as that as totally. that goes up. And then do you get? And I, I totally think that's a really important psychology as well. Is that people will not? It doesn't matter how you know if you love your Morgan mm. three wheeler or something. Yeah, you know, I think there's lots of people that love their Morgan three wheeler more than a Ferrari Dino yeah. owner happens, you know, you could find two extremes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's no way that you can bring yourself to spend no. 
do you get people well, buying and this is something that I, i'd always like thought about doing and i haven't really done but slightly it was if they've got a car that they've like loved and it's you know maybe it might have been an investment as well and then they sell it do they just do people get models of cars kind of as they're going as the real the main one is 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 heading off they that has happened it's can't say that it's a sort of really regular thing but it's something that i expect more and more um because we've made for the la ferrari mm. for instance we supplied ferrari with models that were gifted to each customer okay yeah so we know from the number of models that we made that had fully opening doors of the LaFerrari, yeah. a lot of those customers came and bought the fully opening version as oh, well. Okay. So they had the gift version from Ferrari, which was a curbside, nice. and also the fully opening one. And um, we have had just recently, a couple of times, had somebody come along, and it, one of them was a, uh, a really high-end car broker. And he said, look, I've, I've broken a deal between this, yeah, yeah. My, these two people one of them's the owner at the moment and he wants to keep the model you know but the new owner wants a model okay. as well so can i get you know and they ordered a, a, a replica of the model that we made yeah. a few years ago that went with the, model, with, with the car in the first place so yes that does happen and i also think there's a really good um you know for sure having the model it's like as time goes by and people are reselling these cars so that people who, particularly when it's one of the Ferrari gift models mm. that they've supplied to each customer, that it's kind of like having the original toolkit, you know, having the model. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it get that. Deal in the first place and you expect to have it there as well. Yeah, I totally get that. Or the watch or whatever, like all of those things that you can now buy along with. If, um, if I found a, an amalgam model that was like on eBay or something or, or managed to procure one, could I send it back to you to be like touched up and then maybe the color change or something? Can you, would, do you do yeah, those sorts of things? Would definitely refurbish it, but a color change is really undesirable. Okay. <laughs> from our point of view, it's because, you know, we assemble the model never in the expectation that it's going to become a okay. part again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that if you then start to disassemble it, you know, you run into all kinds of problems with damage and, mm. and so forth. Not impossible, but generally speaking, it would cost the same yeah. as having a new model made. So just have a new model. I mean, that sounds like a kind of sales pitch, but it isn't. It, I, it seriously is. I know what you mean. If you've got to respray it, you've got to take mm. a lot of it apart, which is a huge part of the whole thing. And then it's not designed to come yeah. apart. So I can see how it's, and I can see why you guys don't necessarily want to do that. You're like, we'd rather make fresh new ones. Thank you very much. Um, yes. Yeah, that's, that's right. There is also, I mean, going back to my architectural model making days, is that inevitably, and kind of harking back to your question about, you know, traum traumatic yeah. events in the model making process, is that, you know, with architectural models, you're working through, you know, parallel to the design process. And quite often, you know, the architects would just get, you, you think that you're well on the way to getting this model finished. 
and suddenly they just realise that they just want to change something yeah, really yeah, fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> and they say, yeah, well, can't you just sort of tear it down? And Yeah, okay. And one of the things that we built a tremendous reputation on was the willingness to, you know, fully focused on the the reason for making the model as opposed to just loving this, yeah. owning it for ourselves. You know, it's a tool yeah. towards a, an objective. Um so we're always willing to make these kind of radical changes. But, you know, I would, when presented with the opportunity or the choice between reworking something and the feeling that it's not ever as kind of yeah. crisp and sharp and nice and, you know, and just tear it, throw it in the bin, start again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's what I would always go for, the throw it in the bin, start again option. Yeah, I get that. Totally. There's, there are actually some um, hilariously insane videos on YouTube of people rebuilding like little diecast models and stuff. Like, like I've definitely lost a few minutes of just watching this melted car come back to life and being like, "Yeah, that's pretty impressive." It's quite quite interesting how they do that. Right. Well, I normally wrap these up with with five questions. Okay. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? That's a good one. That's an easy one. My immediately comes to mind is that in my youth, I can't remember how old I probably was at the time. I think I'd have been in my late teens. Um, I was invited to go on a trip. I can't remember why or where we were heading to actually, but a, a London friend of mine, who was definitely right out on the edges of, uh, in terms of alternative criminality (laughs) he had a sunbeam tiger yeah which back then was i had no idea what a sunbeam tiger was but we blasted up from london to manchester i think it was but um anyway long motorway trip and you know he was just pushing it right to the limit 150 miles an hour up the motorway so this was definitely not the days you know if you think back to you know that's in, in the early 70s Speed limits were absolutely in place, but then, you know, there wasn't a lot of technology, was there? Yeah, so if you were spotted by a, a jam sandwich, you know, looking <laughs> past at 150 miles an hour, there yeah. wasn't a lot they could do about it, really. <laughs> Phone ahead to the next yeah. town or whatever and sort of get somebody out, but they wouldn't bother. Um, that was pretty memorable, especially as the um, it had some bearings that had failed on, on a lay shaft in the um, gearbox, which meant that when he was up at high speed, there was this shaft that was like thrashing around yeah. inside the <laughs> He was piling up various pieces of apparel to kind of try and dampen the noise that must generated. And then um, on the way back, we, um, somebody in an E-type kind of came alongside right. and there was the nice. look and the challenge, you know. We had a little race with that. That was great. <laughs> So, I mean, I've had more exotic and faster car experiences than that now in the last few years with Ferrari hot laps yeah. and stuff. But that was, that was particularly, because of my youth. Yeah, and, it sounds, it sounds fun. Um, I'm going to give you a car one. If you could only, you, you get two cars. One is unlimited <laughs> value. You have whatever you like. And one is 500 pounds. Well, the unlimited value one... Very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd probably take a 250 GTO. Nice. Which is rather too boring of me, but um, 
and the 500 pound car. Yeah, I don't know whether you've, well, 500 pounds wouldn't buy me a, um, a later Super 7 these days, would no, it? Unfortunately no, not. This is the slightly. <laughs> What's he? The question is what costs well, what 500 pounds? And the answer is I, I generally haven't got a clue. The main, the main reason this came about, um, and I, I need to do some more research on, on available options, was so that this one car that you own, you only had one car, is so you could have something slightly practical on the side if you were happy to have a 500 pound practical car so that you could have a sports car and then it would. The trouble with me is that my taste in modern cars is all, you know, not that they're outrageously, um, I've got an electric Audi e-tron. Oh, nice. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Really fantastic drive. I mean, honestly, it's so good. I love it so much. Uh, you know, it's quite exciting if you want it to be. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I don't have any ideas about sort of what's cheap to buy at 500 quid now. I mean, loads of things, you know, I, I drove a Lotus Cortina mm. so many decades ago that I thought was perhaps the best drive I'd ever had up to that point. And I'm sure that I could have bought that for 500 Yeah, 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 time. back in the time. We'll go with that. <laughs> back in the day. Yes. Um, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What do you think should be worth more? Oh, there you've got me going. No, I can't help you with that. I really don't have the... Um, don't have Model the cars made by a Malgrim. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. No. Okay. Don't know. Right. Don't have an answer for that one. Most interesting car. What are you Googling? What are you looking up? Um, well, Valkyrie is mm. quite interesting. It's a bit of a cheat because I'm looking at that at the moment because of our, our need to make models yep. of it. Well, I do think that's a – I was talking something about that earlier – is that it seems to be um, the designers that I talk to from other companies okay. all hugely admire Aston Martin's work on that car. I think it's – ignoring whether it's finished and they're being delivered yet and all the stuff that's gone on in the middle, like – as a thing to like look at and to hear it is unbelievable like it's so cool whether it'll be an amazing road car i have no idea but it's a very cool thing right it's amazing car. final question five car garage unlimited value okay 57 sc bugatti nice <laughs> yeah 250 gto yeah 250 Testarossa. Going for some big hitters here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's three. Do you have a daily? Um, What's your daily in this I one? I think that a uh, Porsche 959. Mm. Nice. And going for the cheap end of the market, the latest Cortina that I just oh, mentioned cool. because it was such a yep. fun car to drive. I think that would, that would do you nicely. That, that that bunch to have a pretty good garage <laughs> yes yeah, so I might swap out the Lotus Cortina for a um, one of the original Lotus Super 7s oh okay yeah 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 nice no, no, I think the Cortina's a little more you know you can actually take a passenger yeah properly put some know, stuff in the boot direction. and all that they look like fun <laughs> when I see them racing they're like all over the shop they look good 
Um, That's what I remember about the latest Cortina was the tremendous ability to just throw the tail around. Yeah. Just beautiful responsiveness, very smooth power delivery. Yeah, it looked good. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> More pleasurable than I thought it might be. Oh, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.